Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Rather. Thank you for joining me for this particular podcast. One of the great challenges people have had over the past uh, several months in, in Australia generally has been contemplating whether to take the vaccine for coronavirus or not. Uh, there's been some vaccine hesitancy expressed by a range of people. Other people have been queuing up for up to six hours to get the jab. Now, the, one of the interesting tweets I saw recently was from Professor Gemma Carey from the University of New South Wales. Now, Gemma's got an interesting story to tell uh, in that she's got um, some health issues that make life very interesting for her. And she's also had the jab, and she's got a, and there were some consequences to it, but things seem okay at the moment. But she'll she'll tell us more about that and other things as we progress. Gemma, thank you for joining me. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. Now, look, before we begin, um, there may be those who listen to this who don't know your background. So, what would your career look like on the back of an envelope? Uh, so I'm a policy researcher. I'm a professor at UNSW, as you said, and um, director of Centre for Social Impact there. Uh, and then because one career wasn't enough, I decided to go and grow another one. Uh, and I'm also a memoirist. So um, I have a book called No Matter Our Wreckage. And I, I also write for places like The Guardian uh, from a kind of non, with my non-academic hat on, my, life, my lived experience hat on. <laughs> That's great. Look, um, before I ask you this question, I'll preface it with uh, I was born with a chronic illness. Um, Chronic illnesses don't uh, stop you from achieving things. They may slow you down a bit. What are the the challenges in life that you've had with your your health prior to taking, taking the COVID backs? How do you explain that to people? Um, so in 2012, I got the flu um, and my immune system killed the flu and it kept going and it attacked my nervous system. So I got this disorder called Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is actually um, COVID causes that. So that's becoming a bit more common. It used to be rarer before COVID. Uh, but what it means is that your um, your body kind of shreds all of the protective material off of your nerves. So I lost use of my arms and legs for a period of time, had vast amounts of very bad pain and chronic pain, and I spent about five years in rehab um, getting to a point where I could walk and uh, use my arms as normal again. I never made it fully back, but I I got about 80% of the way there. Um, How does that be? How does it translate into uh, what you what you're able to do? Do an example where you can you can share in terms of you know the flexibility or the the, the, the motor skills. Well, what how does that how how does it translate into something? Yeah, look, it's one of those things that um, you know I think invisible and changeable chronic illness or disability is hard for people to understand because there will be times that you'll see me and you'll think, you know, she looks really fit and healthy and I'm hiking up a mountain. 
Um, but I can't go into a loud space because noise causes pain for me. Um, so, and there's a lot of things I can do that other people can't do. Like I can swim a kilometre um, freestyle. Lots of people can't do that. Um, but I can't, I'm not allowed to run. And um, my my handwriting is terrible because my phone motor skills never quite came back in my hands. So you get this kind of funny mixed bag of high functioning um, and then sort of parts of your life where um, you you um, have lost pieces of things that you used to do. But you, it, it's kind of interesting when, when where you, know, you where things um, no longer as normal as they might have been, something else compensates, right? Yeah, yeah. But it takes a while to work out what's compensating for the thing you've uh, lost complete um, flexibility or complete use of. Indeed, yeah. And you're always sort of working out the boundaries, I think, of um, what your body can do because the, you know, the under it's triggered an underlying problem that's never going to resolve um, mm. and that can look different depending on how, you know, if I've caught a cold or if I'm under stress. So day-to-day, uh, I think if people don't have an underlying health condition, they might not realise that you're actually kind of doing this mental math as the day goes on about oh, how yeah. much have I put my body through. Um, does that mean that I can do this nighttime activity or do I need to actually go and make myself rest so I don't get a pain flare-up? So, yeah, you, it's like maths on the, in the back of your mind all day, each day. Yeah, it, it, it's the same for me. I've got what they call hypoparathyroidism. It's a rare condition. Um, I didn't speak to somebody with that condition. I've had it since birth. And I had – it took me 43 years – to actually speak to somebody else with the disorder, okay? So when you talk to somebody else with the same disorder, you've like got this checklist of symptoms and you're going, oh, is this some, do you get tingling around the around your face at points in time? And yeah, oh, uh, you get tetany, used to, but, you know, occasionally twitches in the muscles, but nothing bad. So you're, you're actually swapping notes with people who understand what you go through. The rest of the world, the rest of the world might think, "Oh, there's somebody a bit, you're a bit dorky or a bit different, or you don't go out a lot." Why? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, whereas you're right. Um, if you make the mistake of not taking a, uh, a vitamin, an active vitamin D three um, capsule. In the morning, you will know about it by mid-afternoon, and you may need to self-medicate with, uh, you know, a couple of teaspoons of coffee, <laughs> just to just to make sure you fight the fatigue away. Yeah. Um, and which reminds me, I'll probably need a coffee reasonably soon. However, and yes, I tip take my supplements. Now, what happened? Um in your case, when you were contemplating to take uh, advantage of a vaccination for COVID, how did how was that process? Because you've got a list of things you worry about on a day-by-day basis. Mm. Um, so I fell into the 1B category, 
So I was eligible um, for Pfizer and AstraZeneca. Uh-huh. And um, I'm, I'm a researcher, public health researcher. So uh, I did a lot of my own research on the vaccines. I talked to my specialists. I, I really gathered as much information as you can gather about, you know, something we don't yet know that much about. Um, I yeah. decided to get the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, for a number of different reasons. So firstly, I I decided to get vaccinated because I am high risk and if I got COVID, uh, it would be devastating for my body and I'm not sure if I'd survive it. Um, So it was important to me to get vaccinated as a high risk person. Um, And I got AstraZeneca because it's closer to the flu vaccine and I tolerate flu vaccine really well without a problem. So, and whereas... Pfizer is a bit more of an unknown technology. Um, but it was okay. really, I think, for people in in a high-risk group, kind of presented with three bad options. One is don't get vaccinated and risk getting COVID, and that's really not going to end well. Take AstraZeneca, um, and, and there is the risk of blood clots. It's very small. It wasn't actually something I was particularly concerned about, um, but it's still a brand-new vaccine. Or take Pfizer, which is a completely new technology. So you're kind of weighing up, well, out of these three options, which one is actually going to hurt me the less, least, knowing yeah. that all three are going to cause me a problem? You landed on AstraZeneca? I landed on AstraZeneca, yes. So I do you want to know the story of what happened? Oh, yes, please. Yeah, so I um, I had expected I'd have a, a pain flare, kind of like what happens when I get a cold, you know, where um, I'll get nerve pain in my hands and stuff and, and it'll knock me around for a few days. So I was ready for that. I'd taken time off work. And I did get the flu-y symptoms. Um, but so I had the vaccine at 4 p.m. on Monday and by 11 a.m. I was in an ambulance uh, the next day. So what happened was I, I, I developed a lot of pain through my body and um, I got a, a terrible blinding headache and it was unresponsive to Panadol and to codeine. And that's on the list when you get AstraZeneca as a blood clot warning. Um, so my dear husband said, right, we've got to do something. But I was in so much pain I couldn't talk or move. So we had to get an ambulance. Yeah. Um, and the ambulance had to ship me out with fentanyl so I at that point could talk and explain what was actually happening and I I presented to emergency um yeah unable to talk because of pain and with non-responsive pupils um but not not showing the other signs of blood clots so um a confusing case for them what what actually happened was that every small nerve fiber in my body um became inflamed so yeah. There was some kind of unlo- there's an underlying tendency towards nerve inflammation left over from having Guillain Barre syndrome, and AstraZeneca shot it through the roof. So my pupils couldn't respond because all the nerves in my pupils were okay. inflamed. Whereas in my hands, like the nerve, it presented in my hands as pain and in my body as pain. So I was doing different things in different places. So I spent four days in acute care. Um, just getting the pain under control Um, and I'm out of acute care. I'm two two weeks and one day post-vaccine and I am still on a very strong cocktail of drugs to manage what's happened and I I genuinely don't know how long this 
period is going to go on for. It could be weeks. It could be months. I'm really hoping it's not years again. Um, okay. Did Your story is very unique. It um, is. I do like to be different. Um, as is mine when I talk to people about stuff. But in hindsight, you, you don't regret the decision to take the vaccine, do you? I do not regret it. A lot of people have said to me, oh, you should have had Pfizer. But there's no way to know that Pfizer wouldn't have done exactly the same thing or something worse um, because we don't have any evidence on, you know, tiny subgroups of the population like me or like you who have well, me, rare I've disorders. Got, I, I've got no idea what, you know, see, um, I understand why some extended members of the family were carrying on last year about having to be locked down. I sat down and said, what are the odds of me actually surviving COVID? Can anybody tell me? I've got a rare disorder. Nobody can tell me anything. So the only the only solution is find a way of operating as much as you can without going out into the big wide world. Um, until you until you're competent enough with the medical advice and other things. I mean that's that's where I landed. Yeah. Rightly or wrongly. Yeah. And that, and that's kind of, I mean, that's why I got vaccinated. Was well, am I going to like spend the rest of my life living inside my home? Um, am I ever going to see my sister who lives in America again? Um, not getting vaccinated didn't seem like a choice, even though, you know, my GP did say to me, "You're going to have a reaction. Maybe you shouldn't be vaccinated." Um, but we don't have herd immunity. We've got low vaccination rates. It felt too risky to me not to be vaccinated against something that is without a doubt, going to be catastrophic for me if I get it. There's another, um, there's a flip side, that, and that is um, those of us that have got rare chronic conditions, um, irrespective of the point of life in which we get them, are actively thinking about how this stuff impacts on us. Um, how do you then mess, give people a message who are relatively uh, healthy, um, who are still toying with the idea of waiting around and not having the vaccine? I think it's really tricky and in some ways it, I find it frustrating and it, it, it's a bit confusing to me um, because if you're healthy, why wouldn't you get the vaccine? The blood clots are less risky than taking non-steroidals. They're less risky than paracetamol, which is the leading cause of liver failure in the world. Um, you've seen a lot of comparison with the contraceptive pill. Um, if there is a vaccine that exists against a virus that can kill you, I, I can't understand why you would hesitate for even a minute about taking it. Um, yeah. Yeah, the, the other complication, and then given that your area of research is sort of public health and, and, and um, the implications of things in society, uh, I wonder whether you've got any thoughts about the role played by um, sort of Twitter and, and other 
social media platforms where I guess conspiracy theorists have been mudding the waters in terms of the public health message. Have you had a look at that uh, in some of your reading of late? Um, look, I know that that is an issue, but I, I actually think with the case of AstraZeneca, it's probably a secondary issue to poor communication out of government itself. Okay. Um, the, the chopping, the changing around the messages, um, I think that the Morrison government made a lot more fear around AstraZeneca um, by changing its stance on it so many times uh, and, and that sort of confusing messaging of you shouldn't have it but you can opt into it. Um, clear, simple public health messaging is really important and I think they fundamentally failed at that. And, and I think that people have interpreted the blood clot risk as being much, much higher than it actually is because of that messaging. Um, the other thing about the blood clots as well is uh, we can detect it and we can treat it. So when I presented to emergency with some of the symptoms of the blood clots, um, you know, the first thing they did was take a blood test of my platelets. And because in the, in the AstraZeneca blood clot syndrome, your platelets will drop. Um, so they could tell very quickly that I didn't have blood clots because my platelets were normal. If I mm. had had blood clots, we actually have treatments for it. Um, so even the blood clots are less dangerous than COVID itself, which I don't think people perhaps realise. Yeah, I get where you're coming from. Um, it's it, the other thing about the, the current period is it's also... Um, with a certain level of fear of the unknown, I think, the extent to which people are capable of comprehending, you know, how to, you know, how to, how to make a decision where you're, you're deciding what is riskier mm. or what, what poses less risk than, um, than in taking, uh, yeah, opposed less risk. It's a bit, it, it, it's a bit of an issue with extreme risk aversion. I think so. I think also, I think people probably don't, genuinely don't realise that there is um, a section of society of people like me who actually are advised to never get vaccines. Um, that I imagine that hasn't ever crossed the mind of a healthy person uh, because until you live it, you don't know it. Mm -hmm. For when healthy people don't get vaccines, it forces people who aren't meant to get vaccines into a position of having to, to take a, a, what is actually a much bigger risk for us, which is is getting vaccinated against best medical advice. Um, and I think people perhaps aren't thinking about the vaccine in a kind of societal level way. Um, it's become very individualised risk and, as you're saying, like um, perhaps, you know, struggling to weigh up the risk um, because I suppose we are relatively safe from COVID here. But what's happened in Melbourne, you know, shows that at any moment there can be an outbreak. Um, and if you have a serious underlying condition, that outbreak, you know, it's life or death. 
Um, yeah. But if we ha- if we had a good herd immunity, there would be people who would be able to not get a vaccine um, who aren't meant to have them uh, and could avoid, you know, very serious adverse reactions like what I experienced. Yeah. Look, I think you, you, you've made the, the message quite clear. Um, and it's probably a convenient segue. Uh, into a close of the conversation because it, um, it's possibly not, not not necessarily selfishness per se, but people are looking at their own bubble of activity, what they can and cannot do right now. Um, they can't jump on planes and go overseas and do the usual thing that they might do at a particular time of year, etc. Um, so that's a good message to leave people with. Now, you've done a lot of work in the uh, with the Centre for Social Impact and you've done some other things as well. Uh, where can people find your stuff? Oh, a bit all over the place. Um, so my research is primarily on the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Okay. Um, uh, and then I, as I said, I wrote a book. It's called No Matter Our Wreckage. It's a memoir. Um, The best way to find me is probably actually just to Google my name or or to go on Twitter because it's a little bit dispersed out there. It's G-E-M-C-A-R-E-Y on Twitter or you just Google Gemma Carey and everything will come up. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes you don't know whether that's good or bad when it comes to to a Google search, do you? Indeed. Yes, no, everyone can find out an awful lot about me from a Google search, so go for your life. <laughs> <laughs> Look, Gemma, thank you so much for sharing your experience uh, with me and those who will pick the podcast up and listen to it. Uh, I do hope people take your message seriously because it's, uh, it's an important one. Thanks for joining me again. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure.